Hello, and happy International Women's Day from the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. I'm Kat Murthy, Cato's Senior Digital Outreach Manager, and this is another event in the Cato Digital Series highlighting the intersection of tech, social media, and the ideas of liberty. Our hashtag for this conversation is, as always, Cato Digital. Please use it to tweet out your questions. Um, our speakers today will be taking them later on in this. And you can also post your questions in the Facebook Live comment thread. I'll be looking for those as well. So each year since the early 1900s, the world has recognized March 8th as International Women, um, as International Women's Day, an opportunity to celebrate the political, cultural, social, and economic achievements of women, while also calling for greater gender parity. So exactly how free are women around the world today? And why is this issue so important? I'm sitting here with Giermina Sutter-Schneider and Chelsea Follett, two scholars here at the Cato Institute. and both of whom have some key insights on the global state of women's freedom and as well as how some of the policies that are meant to promote women's equality throughout the world may or may not be working. Chelsea is managing editor of humanprogress.org, a Cato Institute project that uses data-driven re research to demonstrate dramatic improvements in human progress and human well-being around the world. She frequently publishes op-eds on how market innovations have improved the lives of women. You can find her on Twitter as at Chelevia, that's C-H-E-L-L-I-V-I-A. Girmina is a research assistant in Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. She works on the annual Economic Freedom of the World Index as well as the Human Freedom Index and has written on the link between economic freedom and gender parity. You can find her on Twitter as at G. Sutters, S-U-T-T-E-R-S. So why is it so important that we recognize International Women's Day? Well, uh, women are half of the population, and often when we're trying to measure uh, freedom or economic freedom, uh, we're really just looking at men. The World Bank's Doing Business uh, Index, which launched, launched in 2002, didn't actually uh, add data for women's equality until 2016, and the Human Freedom Index earlier um, has only recently added uh, data for women's equality. Yeah, that's actually the economic freedom uh, of the world. Uh, with the Human Freedom Index, we've mm -hmm. been looking at women's freedoms around the world from 2008 till 2015. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I understand. So that those are that's a recent measure that's been added, although in the Economic Freedom of the exactly. World report, right? That's a chapter that Rosemary Fike wrote, and she came up with a gender disparity index. So older versions of the economic freedom uh, assumed that women and men faced mm -hmm. the same barriers mm -hmm. when it came to economic activities, but that's actually not the case in countries like Saudi Arabia or in the United Arab Emirates, where women cannot open a bank account without a man's permission or approval. So, Chelsea, you, you've previously written there's over 100 countries where women face these kind of economic barriers that men don't, correct? Absolutely. There are 100 countries where some professions are barred to women. Uh, one of them is your native Argentina, where actually women are not legally allowed to run distilleries. That's why I moved from Argentina. <laughs> 
that's so interesting. So how is that? How has including these factors changed the rankings? Has it at all, or? Well, yeah, it actually has. So countries that are economically、mm-hmm. free have seen, but don't actually respect some women's rights, have seen a drop. Not only in the ratings, but also in the rankings. And some of those countries are all countries like in the MENA region and North Africa, like Egypt, United Arab uh, Emirates, uh, Kuwait, Qatar, etc. So, that, how free are women around the world?、Um, and is there a meaningful difference that you see between countries where they're more free or less free? Absolutely. The Fraser Institute actually just published today. Uh, a new、uh, report and interactive website called WomenInProgress.org. It's kind of a nice compliment to HumanProgress.org,、uh, and some of their findings、um, are that in countries with high levels of economic freedom, women actually live 15 years longer than men on average.、Uh, uh, more than 80 percent of them own、uh, are, have access to bank accounts, as opposed to only 25 percent of women in countries with low economic freedom.、Uh, and the stats go on and on. The more likely to have a job. Yeah. So actually, if you take a look at the trend,、uh, you'll see that contrary to what many left-wing feminists、mm-hmm. think, there has been an improvement since at least the 1970s in gender equality. In the、uh, yeah. At the same time, that economic freedom has also has also improved, and also the gap between countries with higher、uh, levels of gender equality and countries with lower levels of Um, gender equality has been closing.、Um, that's, that's great news. Exactly. Great news.、Um, so I'm curious then, since you brought up left-wing feminism,、uh, we've heard a lot. You know, the history of International Women's Day was originally,、uh, I believe, it was originally started by in the USSR post the Bolshevik Revolution.、Um, I think the Socialist Party in the U.S.、Uh, was the first to adopt it as a U.S. holiday again in the early 1900s and. We've certainly seen a lot of cheerleading for communism and socialism as a way to、uh, to increase gender parity around the world.、Um, what do you What do you two have to say about that? Well.、Um Socialists are very good at paying lip service to gender equality. They've always been, but if you look at the actual conditions,、uh, both historically, every single time socialism has been tried, and today as well in places like Venezuela, these are not good places for women. They're not a paradise for workers or anyone else. Well, so, so I remember you've written about、uh, actual shortages in goods that women need, and、uh, a question of what's being、uh, what's viewed as essential, right, in that right. kind of centrally planned economy. Exactly. So the central planners are typically men,、uh, and they tend to view any sort of product for women, including even really basic items like sanitary products, as unimportant, and they will not produce them. Uh, you've seen shortages like this、uh, even right up till the collapse of communism in the communist bloc.、Mm-hmm. Well, so, actually,、uh, in Venezuela, that's what's、uh, been going on right now. And in Argentina,、um, you said in Argentina too. When shortages. I, yeah, exactly. In er, in the in early 2015, there were shortages of sanitary supplies for women. Right, and, yeah, and that actually impacted me like personally. <laughs> so I had to ask、uh, for a friend of mine who was in Brazil to bring me、uh, sanitary supplies because you actually couldn't find、uh, couldn't find those in Argentina, and that was covered actually by the New York Times. So it was actually a big deal. But now in Venezuela, the same thing is going on. Women. Uh, mm-hmm. They've ran out of medicine, so women don't have access to birth control.、Um, right, because it's non-essential. Exactly. Sure, right. Yeah. 
Um, and this is a pattern that we see over and over again. There's no shortage of communist rhetoric on gender equality, but the actual shortages that you see are overwhelmingly towards products for women or products for home production, things like laundry detergents. There are often shortages of that. Um, uh, what, why do you think that is? Diapers. Is it just largely that... Is it again that the people who are in control, the central mm. planners, just didn't consider those, or? Yes, and I think a lot of things uh, that are considered feminine are also considered superfluous or bourgeoisie. Any sort of um, you know, makeup or fashion item obviously was completely deprioritized. Mm -hmm. It was very difficult for women historically and today. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, so why do you think then that we've gotten to this point where you know there was that article from Teen Vogue earlier today, and the New York Times has had several articles that have all essentially suggested that communism is one of the best systems for women. So, so in the face of all of these facts, why do you think that that is happening? Well, they can point to the fact that the Soviet Union offered uh, free laundry services or childcare, and of course, in reality, there were shortages and huge wait lists for that child care. Um, they provided free housing, but that was also constantly short supply. They did that by dividing up apartments. Uh, you know, multiple families would share an apartment where a bathroom would double as a kitchen. They had a shortage of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But they on, had no market signals to exactly. tell people they needed these things, right? But on the surface, saying we, we're providing these things, that's appealing to people if you don't look at what was actually the reality of their experience. So that, that's kind of the beauty of these things like human mm -hmm. progress and these reports that are actually tracking the data behind all of this. Exactly, of and I think that yes. one of the reasons why people probably praise uh, socialism or Marxism is that because they're like denying the data, the hum like they're denying human progress and they actually don't uh, take a moment to look at the data uh, and all the improvement that mm -hmm. thanks to capitalism. They take the rhetoric at face value. Yeah. They take the rhetoric at face value instead of seeing how much capitalism has helped women. Yes. Um, I'd like to take a minute to uh, ask a question that I see here on Twitter. This comes from Charlie Hughes, and he asks, what are some steps civil society and the private sector could take to increase opportunities for women? And uh, before you answer, I just want to let folks who tuned in late know that you can tweet your questions with hashtag Cato Digital, or you can post them in the Facebook comments. Well, I think that definitely when we were talking about uh, these countries in the MENA region mm -hmm. or in Sub-Saharan Africa where women don't um, enjoy the same rights as men, that's one big step that needs to be taken uh, as soon as possible. Right. In terms of government action, ensuring equal property rights, equal economic freedoms is vital. In terms of uh, the civil society, to answer uh, Charlie Hughes' question, uh, Deidre McCloskey has written a lot actually on how the values sort of generated by rising prosperity and a free market society uh, lead to increased tolerance, less sexism included. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Um, you've written about, for instance, I remember how factory, um, what are they called, sweatshops frequently. We hear a lot of negative things about sweatshops, but what I found really interesting is some of your work where you've written about how sweatshops have led to the end of purta, which is, for instance, the um, social separation of women in Islamic societies and other such things. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So lest we forget, uh, we had our own sweatshops in rich countries at one point, and although the conditions were harsh, that was an important first step towards women's You're socio talking about the uh, Industrial Revolution, of course. Yes. Yeah. During the Industrial Revolution, we had our own sweatshops, very difficult conditions. 
but that did lead to the post-industrial prosperity we have today and to uh, unprecedented socioeconomic mobility for women included. And we're seeing that happen today in the developing countries as well, China, now Bangladesh, South Asia. Uh, research from Yale University has shown that in Bangladesh, uh, for example, uh, increased factory work has actually led to a decrease in child marriage and an increase in women's educational attainments. Okay, wonderful. That's great to hear. Why are these, um, why are those important? Why are those important? Um, well, we're also seeing a huge cultural change. We're seeing women, uh, thanks to this increased economic independence, having more uh, bargaining power within their households, having more of a say in household affairs, having more equality in their marriages and in their lives. And as you said, uh, even social norms about segregation between the genders are now changing. We've seen that in Bangladesh. In China, we've also seen it lead to more equality in marriage. Yeah, that's wonderful news. We were actually uh, talking um, before um, about how many resources tech, the, this like technology boom has unleashed, especially with women. Uh, now you press a button and you have your groceries delivered mm -hmm. to your house. And that's and this conversation actually came up with Chelsea's study. Um, you wrote an op-ed on the washing machines right in China. Oh, Absolutely. Yes. Right, so for us, something like an app is now making our lives even easier, but for many exactly. people around the world, they don't even have access to laundry machines. Um, in 1978, when China first dismantled communist policies, uh, less than 10% of households in China had a washing machine. Since then, their economy has grown 31-fold, and in 2016, almost 90% of households in China had a washing machine. That translates roughly into over 600 million women now with access to that, and women do more housework than men still in China. So that is mostly women everywhere. who are benefiting. Yeah. Yes, everywhere. Yeah, so definitely. So it's essentially giving them more leisure time, lowering their workload that they otherwise have, right? More time for leisure or to engage in paid employment uh, or to also put into housework but to better effect. It's their choice. That's wonderful. Let's talk a little bit about that paid employment piece. Um, several countries in the world still ban women from paid employment, at least essentially, in a, in a very real way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So there are, again, 100 countries which ban women from some professions, and there are 18 countries where a woman cannot get any job at all without spousal permission. And those are uh, mostly clustered in the Middle East and North Africa, mm -hmm. which, as Guillermina was talking about, um, has lagged behind a bit uh, on gender equality. Yeah, and also in Sub-Saharan Africa as well. Yes. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So, so on that note, um, what areas of the world are best to live in as a woman, and why is that? Well, I would say Central Europe, Northern Europe, and why North America, North America as well. Yeah, why? Well, we need to take a look at uh, the countries that are performing uh, worse in those indexes where uh, women cannot open a bank account or cannot go and look for a job without a man's approval. Mm -hmm. In the U.S. You can, you can do all those things and you have access to, um, you have more freedoms than other women in, in Sub-Saharan Africa and the MENA region. So I would say Central Europe, Northern Europe and North America are the regions that respect women's uh, rights and freedoms the most. And I think that's a much better way to measure it than to look at something like the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report, which relies heavily on things like 
quotas and ranks Rwanda number four in the world, actually, and the U.S. is number 49 for gender equality. For gender equality. Yes. If you're just looking at statistical parity and things like representation in parliaments, then you can fix that with a quota. But right. The, Rwanda has close yeah. to 70 percent women in their parliament, right? Right. That's yeah. why they're so highly ranked in that index. And every year when it comes out, the media says, look, Rwanda is outranking the U.S. in gender equality. But that doesn't tell you anything about exactly. the quality of life for women in those countries, how free they really are. Right, that's only, that's one job, what happens the rest of the time. Exactly. So, so, for instance, in the Economic Freedom of the World or in the Human Freedom Index or anything like that, how do countries like Rwanda measure up if they're doing so well in these other reports? Well, actually, they're not, they're not actually doing well in the Economic Freedom Index or in the Human mm -hmm. Freedom Index. First, because uh, they don't uh, rank higher in personal freedom and economic freedom, which are the uh, two components of the Human Freedom Index. And not only Rwanda, many countries, as we were saying before, in the MENA region, they don't rank well. And many of those have seen a decline in their ratings and rankings in the newest version with this uh, gender disparity index in the economic freedom of the world. At, at yeah. the same time, in the, the longer view, we have seen uh, some reason for hope, uh, some positive indicators. In Ethiopia, for example, in 2000, uh, they rolled out legislation that uh, allowed married women to have better control over property and to seek employment without spousal permission. That's that's always good news. I mean, it's, it's good to see women getting more free. Um, so I'd like to ask another question that comes to us from Twitter now. Um, this is from Patrick Galmond. What role should the government play in providing women at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder with social programs, i.e. young single mother of multiple children? I think he meant EG, but still. Right. Well, if we're looking internationally, again, a lot of very poor countries might not be able to afford that, but economic growth is the best long-term solution. And we're actually seeing uh, what's interesting is we're seeing some evidence that industrial economic development may even be speeding up in countries like South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. It took less than two generations to get from sweatshops to post-industrial prosperity as opposed to a century in the United States. Yeah, I think that uh, securing, securing uh, property rights is one of the main um, policies that governments should uh, push, especially when you're, you were mentioning uh, Ethiopia. The case in Ethiopia. Yes, we um, saw immediate positive land effect. rights. Exactly. Yes. So security and uh, property rights is a main uh, policy that countries should be uh, pushing, especially that will affect positively women um, who are able to then own their own property, exactly. inherit property, mm -hmm. buy, exactly. sell, right, in a way that they're not mm -hmm. right now in a lot of countries. Exactly. Oh, yeah, definitely very important. Um, so, I mean, this rolls into, I think, I think I know how you're going to answer on this, but so does capitalism hurt or harm women? Um, well, uh, if you're looking at just material well-being, the evidence is overwhelming that markets have created prosperity. If you're looking at uh, freedom also, I think we've demonstrated that economically freer societies also tend to have uh, other forms of freedom. As Guillermo yeah. studied in the Human Freedom Index, personal freedom and economic freedom actually correlate very strongly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you, you, there's a positive correlation between economic freedom and personal freedom. Um, um, so, and as you, as you said, we, we can see that uh, gender equality has, has actually improved over time and that couldn't have happened without uh, economic freedom. 
So Can you explain that a little bit to me? Why is that the case? Well, so if you take a look at, uh, again, at countries like Oman or Egypt, uh, you'll see that if women are not able to, um, to engage in economic activities, those mm -hmm. are resources that are lost. And, um, and that impacts economic freedom um, in the wrong way, because uh, sometimes women, that also impacts in uh, property rights. Women that kind of engage in certain activities uh, have lack of access to property rights, and that impacts negatively uh, when it, it comes to economic freedom. Right. Certainly, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, we've also seen a lot of, uh, a review of the development literature shows that women often stand a lot more to gain from increased prosperity uh, than men or than as people as a whole. Since economic freedom leads to increased economic development, increased prosperity, uh, women are often helped the most by that. You see all sorts of examples. Uh, in India, for example, during times of drought or economic hardship, uh, young girls are more likely to die or be malnourished than boys because in those situations of economic desperation, uh, poor families often will expend more resources on sons than daughters. That's just one example of how women can be more vulnerable in poverty. Yeah, I, I was actually reflecting on that. Um, my family's from India. I, grew, I spent a lot of time there growing up, and mm -hmm. we were talking about washing machines because when I was younger, you would see women all over the place washing clothes by hand, you know, with the rock, like really like beating them mm -hmm. out, and it takes hours and hours. And now, increasingly, more and more families have laundry machines. And it's just the amount of free time, the amount of physical labor you don't have to do is just amazing. And it's because these things are now available to them in a way it wasn't exactly. previously. Well, it's, it's an ongoing story. So in China today, uh, almost 90% of households have access to washing machines. But in India, it's actually still closer to 10%. So we tend to think of this as something in the past if we live in rich countries. But this is a story that's ongoing. Every day, more women are getting access to these technologies. This is happening now. So and it's important to notice now that uh, Chelsea is talking about human progress and how capitalism has impacted women's lives, it's uh, important to point out that uh, human progress has not only impacted men's lives, but women's as well. If you take a look at the literacy rate, for example, in Latin America in the 1970s, only 80% or a little bit more than 80% of men could read and write, whereas uh, the rate for women was like at around 70%, and women have been catching up at a faster pace. And now both rates for women and men are yeah, they're closing. more than, yeah, exactly, more than 90% each. So they're closing, and that, that's good because women were so far behind before. But I think one of the criticisms, one of the concerns that we hear a lot is that perhaps the fact that more women are getting into the workplace is bad for men because they have to compete, so men are being held back. Do you think that there's any truth to this statement? Um, that's, that's a very old criticism. Actually, Friedrich Engels, one of the architects of socialism, made uh, a similar criticism during the Industrial Revolution when he observed in England that in some households, uh, women factory workers actually acted as breadwinners and some men were becoming homemakers. And this was so disturbing to him, he, he said actually that it was insane, that it unsexes the man and takes from the woman all womanliness, and that it degrades in the most shameful way both sexes and through them humanity. So he was very alarmist about it. He thought uh, that any kind of gender role reversal was bad for society. Yeah, I, I just got chills. That's that's creepy. That's yeah. a creepy statement, and that's yeah. what we're hearing is the uh, mm -hmm. source of more gender equality. 
Um, yeah, so that, that's kind of interesting to me. So then um, we have more men and women competing, but they're actually, they're contributing, they're growing the economy, right? And they're growing opportunities. Right, so these things are closely related. As women uh, gain more economic freedom, we actually see economic growth speed up. Uh, in the United Kingdom, for example, one of the reasons it was so quick to industrialize and to have economic growth uh, was because they had relatively high levels of economic freedom for women, for unmarried women, they had uh, perfect uh, legal equality, practically, very early on, compared to other countries in Europe. Yeah, and one thing, too, I mean, we have similar history in the United States, for instance, where the minimum wage was first introduced during the Industrial Revolution to combat the fact that women and people of color were getting more and more into these jobs, competing with white men for these jobs, and so they wanted to set the wages low enough that they wouldn't be able to be single breadwinners, essentially. And so, exactly. Absolutely. And you don't hear about that sexist history of minimum wage laws, usually. Yeah. No, no. So let's talk about that a little bit, actually. So how has the government been involved in women's oppression and also women's liberation? Right, so government historically has uh, been an expression of male preferences. I think that's part of the story. Um, obviously, gender inequality pre-existed the modern state, uh, but by denying equal property rights and equal economic freedoms to women, uh, it creates actual systemic uh, inequality between the sexes that you don't mm -hmm. see uh, beforehand. Let's, uh, let's take a question from Twitter. This is from Christopher Hudson, and he asks, what threats to women's liberation most concern you? What solutions, social, political, market, et cetera, should, be working on, should we be working on in order to address those concerns? Thank you, Christopher. Well, I think it, oh, sorry, it depends on what you call liberalization. Um, uh, if uh, women are asking for more equality under the law, then yeah, if that's a form of uh, uh, liberation, mm -hmm. uh, then that's correct. But if we, if they are asking for more rights to become equal, not under the law, but to uh, gain more rights, then, uh, then yeah, that's that's not a way of uh, that's not uh, actually liberation. I would agree with that. I would say a big threat is uh, sort of the. Uh, whereas feminism was originally a very individualist movement, the trend we've seen since the late 60s and 70s in universities and in women's studies departments towards a more socialist version of feminism and the praising and upholding of that as an ideal, uh, I think leads to policies that actually could harm women in the future and slow down the incredible progress that we've seen. Definitely. If we misidentify the sources of the progress that we've achieved, uh, we cannot continue to affect positive change. Right, and that certainly seems to tie back into what you're saying about the um, misunderstandings of uh, gender equality under communism and socialism and all of those kinds of things. So what sorts of policies, what sorts of ways can we continue this growth? Can we reverse any sort of uh, slowing down of women's freedom? Uh, well, as for innovation, which we've shown has done a lot to change women's lives around the world, we can speed up innovation here at home by decreasing regulatory burdens on that. And innovations that we create in the rich countries do eventually reach women and are still reaching women. Things we take for granted today are still reaching women around the world. 
um, things like basic medical care, for example. Uh, the change in the rate of death in childbirth has been incredible. In, uh, 20, in 2015 compared to 1990, 223 million fewer women died in childbirth in that year, despite population growth, because of the huge decline in the rate of maternal mortality. 223 million people is more than the population of Brazil. That is a huge number of women uh, who are alive today thanks to medical technology. That's incredible. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's wow. I don't know how. Why, why don't we hear more of these numbers? How can people find this information? Well, I think people tend to be pessimistic, right? Mm -hmm. And if you hear the news, you're never going to see, oh, this amount of people got out of uh, poverty, poverty or are, no, not, are, are not poor anymore. You're never going to read a headline like that. And we also, well, Steven Pinker said that two days ago here at the Cadence. Yes. We tend to be pessimistic. We mm -hmm. tend to, it's an evolutionary thing. We tend to pay attention to things that may harm us. Um, and but, but as, by recognizing progress, we can identify how it was uh, achieved, and it doesn't mean complacency. It means uh, taking heart in the fact of progress thus far and identifying what went right and working at it to continue that progress. Exactly. We should be following the trend lines, not the headlines, as yes. Marion to be said. Yes. <laughs> I like that one, definitely. Um, so what about the policies that have been explicitly outlined to deal with gender uh, equality, to, to attempt to push this more? Are there ones that work? Uh, are they working? Are there ones that maybe aren't working so well? Well, I think we should, uh, to answer that question, we should take a look at the Scandinavian countries. Uh, so those are countries that are considered the, uh, with higher levels of gender equality. And, for example, in 2004, I think Norway, they passed a law, um, and it was about uh, quotas, and they, they wanted to increase the number of women uh, on boards of certain companies. And actually, now that we look back, there's a study of the University of Chicago, and I'm just going to read quick the conclusions. Uh, in Norway, they have not led, that policy has not led to an increase in the overall numbers of female executives or to a decrease in the gender pay gap, which was actually what they were um, aiming at. Uh, Nima Sanandaji has done a lot of work on this, the Kurdish-Swedish mm -hmm. uh, analyst. And uh, she, she has a report out with the Cato Institute today, yeah. right? Uh, he, he, on yes. this exact, oh, he, sorry, on this exact topic. That's yeah. correct. And uh, if you look at Scandinavia, and Scandinavian countries are upheld as this paragon of sexual equality often and idealized uh, by Americans, I think, uh, they actually have uh, fewer women reaching the upper echelons of the business world, fewer uh, women CEOs, despite all of these policies trying to help women. And one of their uh, main concerns actually in the Scandinavian countries, I think, is one of the becoming to uh, be one of the main concerns here in the U.S. as well, is that there are not a lot of women in STEM, in STEM fields. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. one of actually another, what they carried out uh, certain studies uh, analyzing the different policies that governments had uh, pushed in order to steer women 
into STEM fields. And years later, what she sees is that women are actually making the same choices uh, than uh, they made before that law was uh, passed. They are still choosing careers different from uh, STEM. Yeah, definitely. And I think I've seen several studies that show that men as well tend to steer away from STEM as they get wealthier and they feel that they have more options to pursue careers they might enjoy more. Exactly. Absolutely. And if there is uh, a difference in what, on average, women versus men pursue, we shouldn't automatically assume that just because they gravitate towards different fields, that means that there is oppression. We should respect people's choices. Um, there was actually an op-ed in an Australian newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, uh, advocating for being... A I remember this one. Remember, yeah, <laughs> this uh, one was bad. <laughs> yeah, uh, someone advocated a law that would make being a stay-at-home mom illegal. And that's just as horrific as the countries where women don't have the freedom to get a job. We should respect women's choices regardless. Yeah. They're Absolutely. adults. They can, Absolutely. Yeah. They're adults. They should be able to make their choices, and that's the whole point. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so it's interesting to me that some of the countries that are regularly held up as examples of gender parity, whether it's, for instance, Rwanda and other MENA countries or the Nordic countries um, that, um, that we were just discussing, um, you're saying in many ways, despite having these sort of gender parity rules, are not actually uh, helping solve problems around gender inequality. Can you discuss that a little bit and suggest maybe what countries are are actually helping more so than these other countries? Uh, well, if you just look at rates of economic freedom, it's really fascinating that that alone tells you a lot about the quality of life for women in countries. Just looking, if you give me the level of economic freedom in a country, I can guess much more accurately about the quality of life for women in that country than if you tell me about their quota system for mm -hmm. women in parliament or in business. So I think some people might be a little bit confused about what economic freedom means in this context. Can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. Uh, do you want to take this? Because it's so yeah, integral sure. yeah, to definitely. be So it means uh, how free you are to engage in economic activity, um, how big is the government, how uh, the government interferes in your um, economic uh, activities is also measures uh, property rights, uh, how high are taxes, how, um, how also regulations interfere in different economic activities. So um, that's how, I, the, um, how that's, uh, economic freedom is uh, measured. And now that we are talking about gender equality, um, that's why this gender disparity index matters. Because if we, if economic freedom is measuring property rights, then the fact that some women don't have access to this, to property rights, or there are barriers that um, are pushing them uh, away from exercising those rights. Uh, that's half the population. Exactly. So that's why it actually matters. Economic freedom matters, and gender equality as well matters. Yeah, yeah, and I think one of the things I found very interesting about that Nordic study that Kita released this morning as well was that in many ways it found that the culture was pushing the gender equality and then the policies themselves were sort of pulling that back, reining it back a little bit. Um, on that note, I'd like to take a question from Facebook. 
Um, and I'd like to remember, uh, remind everybody who's tuned in right now, you can tweet your questions with Cato Digital, or you can post it in the Facebook Live comments. We are taking a lot of questions, because uh, we really want this to be interactive. We want to answer questions that you guys care about. Um, but Sunana Batra asks, one of the bigger hurdles I see here in California is a burden into getting into professional careers is the numerous hurdles young women have to jump through to become um, to become nurses and real estate agents. What can be done to encourage overreaching government from placing these types of hurdles on young women? And I think that we've seen similar issues, for instance, um, with hair braiding licenses and cosmetology and interior decoration and. Um, of course, these are problems across genders, but um, many of the traditionally women's jobs or what are called pink collar jobs tend to be, um, tend to require more licensing than traditionally male jobs, the blue collar jobs, yeah. Right, occupational licensing obviously is a huge barrier if you're in poverty and you are trying to uh, move up socioeconomically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, actually, um, um, doesn't doesn't allow women in the in this case doesn't licensing doesn't allow women to pursue a, probably a career that uh, they uh, they would like to right. to cosmetology to do. Yeah, exactly. many careers that women or that more women tend to do are subject to this and they're often subject to very high very high <laughs> levels of qualification for the job right even to blow higher, dry yeah. hair wasn't there a case recently yeah, yeah. even yeah. to blow dry yeah, hair that was crazy. you a lot of training. It was it something was... like 10,000 hours, though, mm -hmm. whatever yes. the case was yeah. that they were suing on. It was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'd like to take another question from Twitter right now. Um, Alexander Hammond asks, are the countries that score the lowest in gender equality, um, and he doesn't say which, which uh, index, so I guess you can answer mm -hmm. from all indexes, improving their scores at all, or are these nations becoming more unequal? That's where you saw oh, the decline recently, right? Yeah, exactly. So if I uh, take a look at the other uh, data on gender equality from the uh, economic freedom of the world, you'll see that in 2017, the countries with the lower scores ranged from zero, where, where zero means that women have are not allowed to pursue like economic activities, as we were so, talking so before. So what, what, what kind of country would that be? Saudi Arabia? That, and that was yeah. Saudi Arabia, actually, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and it ranged in the uh, 1970s, it ranged from zero to 0 0.44. And uh, 40 years later, that range, the, the lowest, um, the countries that score, that have the lowest scores in gender equality, that actually has improved. And now the range is, I think it's uh, at around 0 0.4 to 0 0.6 on, on those lines. And you'll see that improvement that I was talking about at the beginning of the, of the uh, discussion. You'll see that also like not only countries that had the lowest scores in 1970 have improved um, in gender equality when it comes to gender equality, but also the gap between the countries that have scored higher and the countries that have scored uh, lower in gender equality has also been closing. Right, if you take the long view, there are very positive trends. Um, and even in the Middle East and North Africa region, we're, we're seeing a lot of 
of these lower scores on gender equality, um, citing Steven Pinker again, I encourage you all to check out his book, Enlightenment Now. He's a board member of humanprogress.org. Uh, he actually looked at uh, liberal social attitudes in uh, countries over time and found that, although this is pretty surprising, today in much of the Middle East, uh, attitudes are actually more liberal than they were in much of Europe if you go back a couple of decades. Um, back to, I believe, the 60s was yeah. his comparison point. So we actually need to point out that in the, human, in the measure of women's freedoms, in the, that we uh, include in the Human Freedom Index, which, which is actually a little bit different from the uh, economic freedom of the world, because we include personal freedom uh, indicators such as uh, freedom of movement, women's freedom of movement, inheritance rights, mm -hmm. uh, the freedom to engage in a same-sex relationship, that would be female-to-female -female relationship, uh, female genital mutilation, and so on. So um, what we must point out is that in the last decade or so, uh, we've seen a decline in women's freedoms, and especially because countries like Egypt, uh, the Democratic Republic of, Republic of the Congo, uh, Iran, um, also the Philippines have seen a, a big drop in their uh, women's freedom scores. So this sounds like you're telling me two slightly contradictory messages, both that in a meaningful way uh, around the world, the genders are becoming more equal, and also that women's freedom is dropping around the world. Does that mean overall freedom is dropping, or is it very specific to certain countries? Or what, what do these patterns shake out as? So it maps onto economic freedom very well. We see uh, a rise in the long mm -hmm. run, but then over the past decade, yeah. um, more of a decline. It's a slight decline. Mm -hmm. It's very small, but it's concentrated in countries that are in the Middle East and North Africa, South Asia, um, and Sub-Saharan Africa. It's not the case for uh, Western Europe or Central Europe or North America. Um, Although we have seen a slight uh, decline in economic freedom in the U.S. as well and in a lot of these countries, which would suggest yeah. that there is cause for concern. Yeah. So is this perhaps a case where the genders are becoming more equal in that they are both losing freedoms, such such as the United States, which I think in the that economic be, freedom of the world is yeah, now 17th? That, uh, 16th. 16th, yeah. okay. So yeah, I think that, that that could be the answer. It's not that only women are losing freedom, but uh, overall men as well are losing freedom as well. Right, and if you look at indexes, that just measure statistical parity between the genders, uh, one of the reasons poor countries like Rwanda will score very highly is because if everyone is equally poor or, you know, not so well off. Exactly. It's a case it now in Venezuela. Equality, but it's uh, it's equal misery. Exactly. Poverty. It's a case in Venezuela, and it was a case, well, not as in Venezuela, but in Argentina when uh, with the Kirchner's uh, regime. And, yeah, they make people equally poor. So oh, right, yeah. What does it matter if your quality makes everyone equally miserable? Exactly, mm. exactly. Right. Mm. So it all it all like depends on how you measure equality, um, and we should really be focusing less on equality but on absolute measures of well-being. If fewer women are poor, if they have better lives overall, if they have uh, more equal freedom on paper with men as well, that's all very important. Um, but if you are just trying to measure statistical parity. It doesn't tell you very much about yeah. actual well-being for women. And right. when we're talking about uh, gender equality, should be always equality under the law. Yes. 
uh, as like opposed measuring. to okay. Yeah, as opposed to some uh, studies, uh, the study that you mentioned about the quotas uh, yes. with Rwanda uh, actually ranking better than the U.S. as number in four that. in the world. Yeah, for gender equality. Yeah, right? yes. Yeah, it all like measure like how you measure uh, progress equal gender equality. It matters. Definitely. So so. What matters? What should be? What should we be measuring? What are the important things to measure, and what are what is being measured that shouldn't be being measured to understand this issue? Uh, so we want to make sure whenever we have a measurement that we are including women in that. Uh, the World Values Survey uh, has some data on self-reported happiness that we have on human progress, but if you look into the methodology, for some countries like Saudi Arabia, they're only actually surveying men. And so that might not tell you everything about the actual state of happiness in the country. Again, the Doing Business um, Report of the World Bank and Economic Freedom of the World, mm -hmm. up until more recently, were only looking at you know, the average for men. If it was the case that it took women more uh, days to start a business, if it was more costly for women to start a business, that wasn't captured in those indexes. So we need to be sure to always measure. Them, yeah. Yes, to include exactly. them. Absolutely. So we are running low on time. Um, I want to remind everyone who's tuned in online, you can tweet in your questions with Cato Digital. I'm going to try and take another one or two if we have any time. Uh, but before I do, um, what changes do we need to see happen? What would you like to see change about the world? Um, in order to make, yes, genders more equal, but also perhaps to make everyone freer. Uh, so we're not pulling people down, but we're lifting everyone up. Just very short. I would like to see uh, women in these countries where uh, they don't enjoy gender, like real gender equality, as uh, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates. I would like to see women uh, engaging in the same economic activities as men. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that's vital. And just having more economic freedom in general eventually empowers women to lobby for those. Uh, equal freedoms. So I would just want to say to sum up that markets empower women chiefly through uh, in the option of labor market participation, uh, innovations, life-saving, and uh, labor-saving, and uh, through just establishing equal freedoms and property rights, which you need for a fully functioning absolutely, uh, absolutely. market economy. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. Um, before we wrap up, okay. uh, where can people learn more about this information? Where can they find you? Where can they find human progress? Where can they find uh, the Economic Freedom of the World Report and the Human Freedom Index and more about these important issues? So definitely check out the Human Freedom well, Index. Well, yeah, you can. I thought you were go, you're going you were going first. Uh, you can check out the Human Freedom Index at cato.org/hfi. And also uh, at Cato.org, you can look for the Economic Freedom Index of the World. Absolutely. And please check out humanprogress.org. Um, check out all of the uh, op-eds that Marion Tupi, the editor of humanprogress.org, and I post. You can find them on our blog. We have a newsletter that you can sign up for as well. Email contact at humanprogress.org to sign up for the newsletter. Uh, please check out the work of Steven Pinker, I would say. Uh, and Deidre McCloskey, another of our board members, has done a lot related to this. I would also like to add um, um, Vanessa 
brown color. Yes. She's a scholar here at Cato and she writes about mainly about uh, paid leave. And mm -hmm. she has also written about uh, women's rights. So you should also check her work. Definitely. Absolutely. Uh, so thank you both. Thanks, Chelsea and Guillermina, for participating today and for everybody watching from home or the office or anywhere else you are. Um, please stay tuned for uh, more Cato Digital events in the future. You can watch that Cato Digital hashtag and let us know what you think in the comments of this video or uh, on Twitter. We'd love your feedback and happy International Women's Day.